Uh, Good morning, church family. This morning we're going to be reading from John chapter 2, starting at verse 13, going to verse 25. It's on page 1064 in the blue Bibles that were on your chairs. It's also on the screen behind me, so please follow along. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to rise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival... Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Well, thanks, Aisha, and good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I've been on holidays for a few weeks. It's great to see uh, some new faces with us each, as we do, each and every week, as long as our regular church family here today. Well, fun fact uh, for everyone, we're approaching our 10th birthday as a local church at the end of the month. We'll be celebrating that on Sunday the 26th in a few special ways. And the night before, here at the RSL, we're bringing back curry night as a way of saying uh, both to the RSL and local community, thanks so much for having us here at the RSL and in the local community uh, for a decade now. It would be a great opportunity to uh, invite friends and neighbours along too to experience a little of our life together as a church family, as perhaps one small step in someone hearing the great news of Jesus. There'll be more info uh, about Curry Night this week, but pop it in your diary, Saturday night the 25th, and make sure if you're around to join us on the 26th, the next day for our 10th birthday celebrations. Um, uh, As we're now a year on from planting a new church at Tonsley, five years on from planting at Unley, I've kind of been thinking about how to use our birthday to re-articulate kind of what kind of church we want to be moving forward. I was taking a trip down memory lane uh, earlier this week, trawling through some photos back in 2012 at our weekend together, where a whole bunch of people came along to hear about this new church plant. And among other things, we were trying to give interested people a sense for what kind of church that we wanted to be. 
so here's the uh, first slide. Thanks, uh, Eliza. I'm going to keep you fairly uh, busy today from November 2012 at, uh, at that weekend. Uh, RSL looks uh, a little different there up on screen, doesn't it? We've done uh, a lot here since then. Uh, slide two, we had uh, an inaugural cricket match uh, out on uh, what could barely be described as uh, grass. There's much nicer grass and a car park uh, there now. Uh, slide three, here was our first band. Uh, there's Chriso on guitar, now the music leader at Unley, one of our church plants. And Will, who's still with us, but I haven't seen Will step in today. That's oh, a shame. He's still setting trends. Uh, <laughs> those uh, those pants, I think, are you know quite a story in a number of years uh, ahead of their time. Marcel, <laughs> at least Marcel, uh, Will's father-in-law, really enjoyed that. Even if Will wasn't here to uh, enjoy that one. Oh, thanks, Marcel. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're living, okay, that makes sense. Of uh, the kids thought great. Um, you'll see up on uh, this slide here. I think uh, next one. Uh, there's me. You know, clearly haven't aged a day. <laughs> you know, three church plants down since then, you know, barely a nick on me. Uh, but I, the reason I put this, um, uh, this photo up is to... <laughs> no, it's, it's actually not the same shirt. I have that same shirt in my closet still. I was just saying to Grace yesterday, because if I, I lose a few kilos as planned uh, this year, like my wardrobe will be just opened up again to all the things that no longer fit me, including that shirt, which clearly I like the colour blue. Anyway, back on track. It's <laughs> funny. If, if I've got to bring wheels out like that, I have to you know, take some heckling from the audience uh, uh, myself as well. Uh, now, reason for this photo. I'll try it a third time. Um, the props you'll see up there on the stage are from our very first kids' talk. And like all kids' talks, uh, good kids' talks, like this morning, you're trying to convey not only a point to our kids, but also to the adults as well. In this kids' talk, I brought the kids up on stage and brought out some little IKEA cutlery and bowls and engaged the kids around the idea, what if you were having a family meal, and how would that family meal look different if you had guests with you? And the kids were great. They wanted to make everyone feel welcome, comfortable, make sure everyone was well-fed, got the, you know, the first offer of the, the food, uh, that everyone knew where the toilets were in the house and had a great time with us wanting to come back. And I used it as an illustration of what kind of church we wanted to be as a family expecting guests, the kind of community where it's a great thing to be a part of the family. It's a great place to be a Christian but always expecting new people among us uh, through sharing who Jesus is, our invitations, through people we get to know and serve in the local community coming to join us. And in the 10 years since then, God has been incredibly kind to us with over a, a thousand of those guests in those 10 years coming to join us. And many of them now at the two church plants we've planted in Unley and Tonsley and, of course, uh, much further afield as well. But this concept of being a family expecting guests is why I introduce myself at the start of each sermon. You know, Shane's been here for all those 10 years. He doesn't need me to introduce myself, but we're expecting guests and we have first-time guests with us, of course, today. It's why we let people know where the toilets are each week, why we explain what we're doing as we do uh, something like the Apostles' Creed. 
why we have great coffee and make sure everyone who's new along gets offered a, a great cup because we're a family expecting guests. It's why in our sermons we always aim to have something for the person who's thinking through Jesus for the first time or those who are coming back to church, as Jamie said already this morning, uh, for the first time in a long time. And because we're a family, though, we want to love each other well. We share the family chores together. We, you know, people put out these chairs for us this morning. We serve each other in a whole range of ways. We disciple each other and our kids as they're doing this morning. Our youth groups starting up shortly. Growth groups are starting up. As we share life together and together share the gospel with others. So that's just a, a little bit that might explain, you know, why I still wear a name tag like uh, everyone else uh, here uh, on a Sunday. And, you know, we, we put name tags on. A huge range of us know each other by name, but we want our guests always to feel welcome with us. So um, as we approach our 10th birthday, I thought we'd have a close look at this passage like we always do and first understand what's going on there. And then I thought as we seek to apply it, we'd ask the question, what does it show us about what kind of people God calls us to be as a church? So it'd be great to have your Bibles open to John chapter 2 on page 1064 of the Bibles on your seats, and there's an outline of where where we're going in your leaflets. Well, as our passage kicks off, uh, Jesus comes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as the whole Jewish nation were instructed to do. Uh, as a festival to remember God's goodness to them in saving them from slavery in Egypt, as at the same time God passed judgment on their enemies. Uh, and to grasp what's kind of going on here, the primary purpose of the temple was to symbolise God dwelling with his people. Uh, Sacrifices for sin were offered there, reminding people of the immense barrier sin places between us and God and that a costly sacrifice was needed. Uh, And uh, at this stage in the Old Testament, it was according to your means what needed to be offered. So cattle, for example, if you were wealthy, a sheep perhaps for the middle class and a dove for the poor to give you a sense of it. As a reminder that God graciously offers a way for sin to be dealt with and it was never meant to be just kind of a task to be done but as a way of kind of solemnly considering the full weight of our sins, expressing repentance, receiving with thanks God's forgiveness, generating in the heart a great trust in God, a renewed desire to turn from sin and live in ways that bring glory to God instead. So with the whole nation coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, of course, someone had to facilitate everyone having a sacrifice according to their means. Uh, I take it, as we kind of get into the story, Jesus would have had no issue uh, with those who sold such things in a convenient spot outside of the city walls. Uh, Yet, clearly, a step too convenient for Jesus to place them inside the temple, which was supposed to be a place of reverence, reflection on sin. Uh, or of God's grace, yet they turned it into a bustling and loud marketplace. The temple too had its own currency, hence the money changers are there facilitating things. Uh, I think it's safe to assume they were not simply facilitating, uh, but uh, taking a cut and making some uh, money along the way. And again, in a totally inappropriate spot too. 
Yet I suspect there's a deeper offence Jesus feels here, that these things are just the surface level issues that point to a much deeper heart issue with the people of God. They'd forgotten the extraordinary blessing of the God of all creation being pleased to dwell among them. They'd forgotten the deep, deep problem of sin between God and humanity, and we're just engaging with things, uh, some I'm sure, in just a ritualistic way. They'd forgotten the gracious provision of the sacrificial system and the desire for a changed life in response to God's grace. In its place, like so much of religious practice, the heart, it can often start for a great reason, yet the heart is often then forgotten, yet then only the actions remain which, if they're done without the heart, are pretty pointless. So, you know, once you kind of get to that place in life, you'll accept anyone who's going to make your, you know, trip to Jerusalem uh, a little easier to, you know, conveniently put the money changers and the doves and the cattle right uh, in the temple so you can just kind of get there and get the job done. I think understanding that deeper heart issue... Uh, gives us some insight to the kind of almighty response of Jesus, overturning tables, scattering the money changers' coins, making a whip to drive out the cattle, saying to those uh, who had doves in cages, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. And John, our author, who was there that day, writing many years later, gives us insight into what many were thinking that day much like watching a movie with the director's commentary turned on. As he says, verse 17, as all of this happened, this this great commotion, that his disciple remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, Quoting from Psalm 69, actually, a psalm of David that John actually picks up a number of times in his gospel, uh, seeing the connection between the opposition David faced because of the zeal he had for God's name, his reputation, his house, his people, and uh, the opposition that Jesus would face for the same reason. And that opposition starts to emerge, verse 18, as the Jews respond. What sign, Jesus, can you show us to prove the authority, uh, prove your authority to do all of this? Just imagine the commotion. Which does raise an interesting question about the value of people wanting to see signs and basing their belief in Jesus upon them. If, for example, you skip down, we'll look at it a little bit more next week, but for now, just skip down to verses 23 to 25 for just a minute. Uh, Kind of some transitionary verses between this story and the next. We read, Now, while he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, he being Jesus, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And as we'll see in John's Gospel, there's a belief based on signs that's pretty fickle. Great crowds see impressive miracles and follow Jesus right up until the point he says something challenging to them and they walk away. Uh, The story of Nicodemus touches on this issue, which Jamie will take us uh, through next Sunday. But for now, Jesus knows what is in each person, their heart, their motivations. And he's wary of people who entrust themselves to uh, him just based 
on the response to the sign he provides. So come back now to the Jews. I presume uh, uh, those with some role of leadership in the temple demanding a sign from Jesus to prove his authority to do with great zeal what he's just done, cleanse the temple courts. Uh, There's some basic Bible context here which helps us feel the weight of this kind of tense moment. Imagine the standoff. You know, Jesus has just been asked a question. Jewish leaders are there. The crowd's just dispersed. The disciples are hanging around. Um, And uh, the Jews uh, are expecting a Messiah King to come to them at this point. This kind of what Christians call messianic expectation had been built by God through the prophets for centuries, like we saw in Isaiah, for example, last year. Yet at this point, at this, you know, at the moment of this kind of standoff, there'd been an extended period of prophetic silence, centuries worth actually, where there'd not been a kind of prophet uh, sent from God. Not a word. Yet a faithful remnant of Jews had to continue to read and teach God's word in the synagogues and the centuries past. The Roman Empire had arisen and taken control of their land, kind of triggering a renewed kind of heart, a deep desire for God's king to come, I, I guess largely to, to free them from Roman oppression. But And one of the last things God had said to his people, however, before this period of prophetic silence, we can read in what's in the last book of the Old Testament, you know, kind of literally, for most of us, the page before the New Testament in our Bibles. It comes from Malachi. I'll pop it up on screen, thanks, uh, Eliza. It's Malachi 3, verses 1 to 5, and I'll just read that to you. So bear in mind, there's centuries of silence coming after this. This is kind of one of the last things chronologically God has uh, said to the Jews before this standoff uh, in the temple centuries later. God says, uh, through Malachi, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, God speaking, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as the refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, you know, sort of deep note there that they're not presently, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial, says God. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So, you know, there's kind of God's final word that should have kind of been ringing in their ears as a key thing as this expectation of a king comes. And it's not like they weren't on the lookout either, Uh, for the Messiah King at this specific point. The first thing John draws our attention to in his gospel after the kind of executive summary of the first 18 verses is the religious establishment from Jerusalem 
heading out to speak to John the Baptist, who'd kind of taken over the news cycle at this point, all over, you know, Twitter and TikTok and, you know, he was everywhere. He was the news item of the day. John says as they question him uh, that he's not the Christ, but quoting from Isaiah said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, make straight the way of the Lord. And then he said that, you know, this person was already among them, whose sandal he is not worthy of untying. So their radars, you know, should have been up and as fully aware as possible uh, at this point, coming into this standoff, to be looking out for this Messiah King to come and kind of cleanse and purify, not just the temple as a location, but the people's hearts to restore it to right worship. So these people who are asking for a sign, well, they'd already been given a pretty clear one from John the Baptist, as we've just read from Malachi. He, uh, you know, from verse 1 said, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. So here is Jesus fulfilling a very clear prophetic expectation, coming like a refining fire, the Lord himself, to his temple. As Malachi promised, and as we've just seen in the story, who can stand before him? He's coming to purify and return the people's hearts to right worship. That, as our Malachi quite clearly states, is to then lead to right living with a deep concern for justice, care for the poor and vulnerable. So the whole nation's there kind of in celebration mode, perhaps a little perfunctorily going up to the temple to kind of to tick the box uh, there. They're remembering God's great salvation that he's achieved for his people. Yet as the Lord actually comes to his temple, you can see he's kind of putting his own people on trial. Jesus is being a deeply challenging saviour. So now with that background, let's return to the standoff, that kind of awkward pause between question asked and answered in the temple courts between Jesus and the Jewish establishment. Let's come back to verse 18 of today's passage. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Now, of course, Jesus, who can raise the dead, turn water into wine, could have given them a sign, of course. Yet he knows the heart of a man is fickle and that, you know, the cool party trick version of a sign won't generate real belief. However, of course, being the Lord of all creation, God, he knows what will. His resurrection from the dead. So Jesus gives an answer that is intentionally obscure for his audience at the moment as he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. I think we can all forgive Jesus' audience for being confused at that point. Yet here's the key verse that helps us unlock the passage, I think. I'll pop this one up on screen, Eliza. Uh, Verse uh, 22 of today's reading, where we read the kind of director's commentary note from John, an eyewitness to these events. He says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
So as opposed to the fickle faith of those who'd seen some of Jesus' great signs, we see here Jesus sort of outlining that real faith comes from putting those signs together with the Scriptures, with the many prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, like we've done today in our Malachi reading. So if you're here today thinking through Jesus for the first time, I really want to commend to you two things for the year ahead. Reading through John's Gospel carefully, looking for the signs Jesus does, because John is writing this account of Jesus' life for exactly the purpose, as he states uh, in uh, chapter 20, and again I'll pop this up on screen, thanks Eliza. This is John sort of coming to the end of his Gospel saying, here's why I'm writing. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How would you go about reading uh, John's Gospel, you might ask? Well, I'd suggest doing it one-on-one with a Christian. Uh, We have a great resource here called the Word One-to-One and I'll just pop a screenshot uh, up uh, there on screen for that one. Thanks, Eliza. It's a really easy and super helpful format uh, to work through and again, if you're interested in doing something like that, we're giving you plenty of uh, reasons to use the response slip today. Just tick I'd like to find out uh, more about Jesus and we'll be in touch. But also for the Christians here, if you'd like to hear more about using the word one-to-one to to share about Jesus with others, uh, the author of the format, uh, a really great guy from London, Richard Borgenen, uh, is in town next month. Uh, Last time he was in Australia, we had him here at the RSL. We had about 50 or 60 people along to hear him explain the word one-to-one. It was a really great day. Uh, This uh, year, on March 3, he'll be out at City Light, North Adelaide, and I'll pass on the details amongst the many other things, obviously, that are happening around our church. And that's thanks uh, to our gospel partners at City Bible Forum. Uh, but also, if you're checking out Jesus, uh, follow Jesus' lead from today's passage and focus, uh, um, you know, as someone who like, runs our life course and spends uh, more time uh, than most with people investigating Jesus' faith, there, there's, of course, many questions to ask. Uh, and many things that you might want to work through, which are all wonderful questions to think through. But I think this passage focuses in to encourage you to focus your energies into digging into the resurrection and why a thoughtful, uh, intellectually um, honest, rational person can and indeed should have good reason to trust that Jesus' resurrection did actually happen. And uh, a great place, of course, to discuss those questions is the life series uh, that Jamie mentioned before. So now we've kind of understood a little about what's going on in this passage, let me now return to my opening question. How does it shape what kind of church we are today? Firstly, I want us to be a people who intentionally allow ourselves to continually be challenged by our most wonderful Saviour, Jesus. With the Malachi background to today's passage, giving us a a fuller understanding of why Jesus came, it's very clear that he wants his people to uh, worship God righteously, authentically from the heart. And our righteous right standing before God is a gift God gives to every Christian, provided by Jesus, who went to the cross to die for our sins. We can never kind of move on from that. 
and going deeper into what uh, Christ has done for us on the cost and increasingly rejoicing in it always has to remain the bedrock of the Christian faith. But again, from our Malachi passage, the Christian life remains rooted in that very strong foundation, but flowing out of that, God wants us to have lives where we put sin to death, to pursue the ways of living in our workplaces, our homes, our local community that bring glory to God and great blessing to others. It's interesting for uh, some of our uh, seniors who like to read along today, you'll notice I'm going to skip the whole next half page about why community groups are great because almost word for word without talking about it, Jamie uh, made all the exact same points and you can uh, check the written record of that uh, if you like. Can I just commend uh, as well as Jamie uh, the great value in uh, joining a growth group as a place where we can individually push into what it means to keep growing as disciples who bring great glory to God. And a second way I'd love this passage to shape us is to be inspired and challenged by Jesus in our passion for God's glory. Uh, um, in our story today, Jesus is outraged that such an industry has kind of placed itself um, around um, you know, the temple, this place where people were meant to come and be with God. But of course, uh, today, given uh, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, uh, people don't come to a physical place now to be with God, they come to Jesus. He is the new temple, uh, again inferred in this passage and, and developed elsewhere. And it's this Jesus who calls us to live in community together and gather in his name like we're doing today. We do want to be a great family to be a part of for Christians. But of course, as we approach our 10th birthday, let's continue to do that in a way where we're a family loving each other, but always expecting guests and warmly welcoming people in. There's really simple ways to do that, to invite someone new back to your home uh, for lunch or to catch up for a uh, a coffee, having a, a chat out on the veranda. But also... Uh, I think too it's so easy for churches, I think the gravitation pull is always to kind of focus inwards and start thinking more and more about ourselves and our needs and lose that balance of looking outwards uh, for the people in the community around us who desperately need to hear the wonderful news uh, of Jesus. I think that plays out sometimes in you know, how we spend our time, we can give a lion's share to sort of internal activities, uh, turns of phrases can start springing up from, you know, from up front or even the way we talk to people informally out in the yard that we're kind of expecting just, you know, the faithful to be here and we're not uh, actually expecting guests uh, amongst us. So please, you know, it's a great chance to kind of keep re-grasping that passion uh, to be a family expecting guests. While at the same time, I think keeping the necessary stumbling blocks uh, of the reminder here uh, that both the temple and Jesus um, highlight our need uh, for sin, uh, for the great sin problem to be solved, that sin is a, a great issue between us and God, then we need to repent of it and find Jesus as a wonderful saviour. As we look out to those in our lives that don't know Jesus, ask yourself, is the relationship at a point that I could ask them to come to life with me or to read the Bible one-to-one? And come along to that training and be equipped on how to do that well. 
And if you're thinking, well, I just don't have anyone in my life I could do either of those things with, well, again, a great chance to be reinvigorating to start that journey today to getting some more people in life that you could. Carrie and I, at the end of the month, as we celebrate our 10th anniversary, is a very easy invite to a generous meal. Your friends and neighbours can experience something of our community, you know, coming on site here to the RSL to see where we do church and to meet uh, some of our church brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Because it's our passion for God's glory that wants to see God honoured in the lives of people who don't yet know him. We want to keep thinking, how can we be the church that removes as many as possible of the unnecessary barriers that people have in coming to hear something about Jesus, uh, whilst remaining true to the core of, I guess, the necessary stumbling blocks, uh, that we follow a Lord who calls us to repentance of sin, and we believe in a great and wonderful Saviour who's actually risen from the grave and raises, uh, that lives today as the Lord of eternity. Because might I be bold enough to suggest to you, if um, you've lost your passion for seeing new people to come to know Jesus, I don't think we can maintain that we do actually have a great passion for God's glory. Yet, I know so many of you do have that passion. It's a passion that's seen us welcome over a thousand people into our church family over our first 10 years and into our church plants and further afield across Australia and other great churches across our city. I actually was encouraged. I had a nice uh, moment this week getting back from holidays, just trying to get a, a handle on things, you know, answering emails and things like that. I looked at the uh, attendance uh, spreadsheet on what was going on at, uh, both uh, here and at Tonsley and at Unley. And as I looked at the numbers, I thought, isn't this a nice moment? There were a great number of people along here at Kernelite Gardens this week but both of the churches we've planted from here were bigger <laughs> uh, than uh, we were uh, here last Sunday. I think that's uh, the first time that's happened. I share that story because it's just a small illustration of, you know, having a passion for God's glory is not about us and what's going on just in this building. As much as we want to be a family that looks after and loves and serves each other well, it's primarily about having a passion for God's glory and new people coming to hear and respond to the immense news, immensely great news uh, of Jesus. So in that very first kids talk back in 2012 where I shared uh, that we wanted to be a family expecting guests, uh, I said I really wanted to strip away as many, as many of the culturally odd things about our church as is wise, uh, but leave people who come along as, uh, uh, to us struck still by a couple of culturally odd things. That as a church family, we really, really love Jesus. We're passionate about God's glory and have a genuine heart to see people come to know and place their trust in him. So let's spur one another on to such passion as the best way to celebrate 10 years of God's incredible goodness and kindness to us as a church. Let me close in prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for the very careful way uh, John has put his account of Jesus' life together to really uh, challenge us and bring out uh, just what a challenging uh, saviour Jesus uh, can be at times. Please allow us to continually uh, be challenged by him at different stages of our life. 
Uh, but Lord, please also let us feel the great comfort uh, of knowing that as we entrust ourselves to Him, He is a wonderful Saviour who binds Himself to us and will never let us go. And might this reminder of your grace to us uh, spur us on to uh, the right uh, and from the heart worship uh, that you call from your people, uh, that it might spur us on to keep uh, pursuing repenting of sin and living in ways uh, that bring glory and honour to you that uh, are passionately concerned uh, for justice and the vulnerable in our world. And might all of this um, continue to well up in a great passion for people hearing and responding to the immensely good news of Jesus, uh, his uh, life, his death on the cross for sin, and rising to new life, uh, to, to be and to remain the Lord of all creation, uh, the head of your church, and indeed, uh, as one of the local parts of that here on the earth, uh, chief shepherd of this one. Uh, please keep uh, leading us. Uh, please keep uh, growing in us a great passion for your glory and a great zeal for sharing the great news of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.